Welcome to the VA Tourism Podcast. I'm Kojiman Williams. The VA Tourism Podcast is dedicated to Africa's travel and tourism industry, where leaders from the private and public sectors get to talk to us. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and Google Podcasts. My guest today is the founder and CEO of award-winning NGO Conservation Through Public Health, Dr. Gladys Kalimazukuzuka. Her NGO Protect Endangered Gorillas and Other Wildlife Through One Health approaches. In today's conversation, she discusses the need for tourism sector to make conservation a cardinal pillar of the industry and shed light on the initiatives her NGO and other partners have engaged in to improve the lives of the communities as well as the well-being of the gorillas. So Dr. Gladys Kalema Zukuzuka, I hope I got your name right. Can you tell us more about yourself? I'm. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. I'm a wildlife veterinarian and conservationist. I got into wildlife uh, as a teenager when I started a high school. I started a wildlife club, a new club in my high school. I revived the Chibuli Secondary School Wildlife Club. And then I later on, I've always wanted to be a vet since I was little because we grew up with many pets at home. But after that experience, I felt that I wanted to be a vet who also works with wildlife. And as I did more research with great apes, I worked with chimpanzees in the zoo, chimpanzees in the wild in Budongo Forest, um, after working with them in the Entebbe Zoo, and also mountain gorillas in Windy. I felt that I wanted to become a full-time wildlife vet. And I managed to become the first full-time wildlife vet in Uganda. When Uganda National Parks felt that they needed to have a vet doctor because gorilla tourism had begun and they were concerned that gorillas could pick up diseases from people because we're so closely related and we can make each other sick. And so that was where I really started my career in wildlife working as a first vet for the wildlife, Uganda Wildlife Authority. Wow, that's fascinating. But if I may ask, um, aside joining the club, what ticked your interest? Aside from joining the club, um, I well, probably what tickled my interest is I like animals. And, you know, just growing up with so many pets at home, and one of them actually ended up being an exotic pet visitor that used to come to visit us <laughs> <Wow>. often. <laughs> Our neighbor had a... Our neighbor had a pet velvet monkey and they called it Poncho. They were Cuban, Cuban ambassador and his wife. And so Poncho used to, once Poncho realized at our home we have many animals, got excited about coming home and used to climb over the fence and come down and pull the cats and dogs' tails, get them annoyed, used to steal food in the kitchen. And one time, Poncho, one time I was playing the piano and Poncho watched me play in one note and jumped in and did the same. So, and then I ran, when I went to check on him, he ran out quickly. So he was a really mischievous monkey, but he made me just extend my passion for animals from domestic animals to, you'd say, exotic animals like the monkey. <laughs> and so that's something that really sparked my interest. But also I realized that some of these animals were very few in number. Um, for example, when I took the students on a trip to Queen Elizabeth National Park in uh, 1989, so shortly after Amin had been ousted and 
a lot of wildlife had really been depleted. There, was, there were no predators, there were no lions or leopards. So they, we could even go and walk in safaris, you know, which is alarming and sad that even the predators were no longer there because there wasn't much for them to eat. Um, and some of them had also been, you know, like killed by the local communities likely or things like that. They were not coexisting with the community. So, but now it's the situation has changed because communities seeing that people come to see lions and leopards and the numbers of wildlife have grown. So everything has changed. But I got a sense that if we don't protect nature, it's going to disappear and it won't be there for future generations and we're all going to lose. So I started feeling like that when I was around 17, 18 years old. Wow. That must, you know, that must have been a dream of, uh, you know, your interest and you know, going through the whole processes and also understanding your environment. So, it's, I mean, it's going to lead me to the next question of uh, how uh, you, you know, went further to establish this NGO uh, called Conservation Through Public Health. Uh, I suppose that uh, if I'm if I'm to take what you've just said a minute ago, is to you know create. Uh, I mean, let me let me leave you to answer that. But yeah, yes, conservation through public health came about based on the experiences I had. The gorillas. One of the very first cases I had to handle was a disease that came from the local community, not from the tourists, and it ended up being scabies or sarcoptic mange, as it's more commonly called. And generally, this disease happened when the gorillas went outside the national park boundaries to eat people's banana plants and eucalyptus, the bark of eucalyptus trees or other trees in people's gardens. And they came across dirty clothing on a scarecrow, which people put out scarecrows to chase away gorillas, baboons, and other wild animals. And they won't necessarily put their cleanest clothing over there. And so the gorillas probably touched it and they got the scabies but it resulted in a baby gorilla dying and the rest only recovering with treatment. And once we found out that the disease probably came from people living around the park, we, we held health education workshops with over 1,000 people in eight villages, um, going to places where there was a lot of tourism, places where tourism hadn't started, but they wanted it to begin, and places where we even went to DRC where they've never even had any conservation programs across the forest, because Windy connects to Sarambe Forest Reserve, which is in DRC. And we got different reactions from all the different communities, which made me realize how important tourism and conservation and research is. Because once you have a human presence there, protecting the wildlife, the community starts to find that it's important, as long as they're benefiting from jobs and education. But also one thing it made me realize that the communities came up with very, very good suggestions of what we can do to improve the situation. And some of what they proposed was they wanted health services to be brought closer to them. They wanted continuous health education about being healthy and hygienic, and they wanted to strengthen the human gorilla conflict resolution team that was created, initiated by the Wildlife Authority to herd gorillas back to the park when they come out. And so that to me was a very big eye opener of what could be done and what needed to be done. We can't protect the gorillas without thinking about the people who share their habitats without improving the health of the local community. And so we set up conservation through public health to promote biodiversity conservation by enabling people to coexist with gorillas and other wildlife through improving the health of the animals, the people and the livelihoods of the people. And 
in this way, it's all about coexistence because when you improve the health of the people, you not only reduce a risk of diseases spreading from people to great apes or great apes to people, but also you improve their attitudes to conservation because you're showing that you care about them. You're addressing healthcare, which is a basic human need and a basic human right. Now, in your advocacy uh, or, or, you know, the NGO, um, what has been some of the things that uh, you believe that uh, in the last few years uh, you've been able to let people understand, uh, you know, particularly human wildlife conflict and how we can resolve it? Yeah, with, with our approach, we found that what you call the One Health approach, we championed one of the first One Health food programs in the whole world when we founded Conservation Through Public Health in 2003. Um, we found that at the time, everybody was like, why are you integrating public health with conservation? Why are you addressing human and animal health together? You know, but now it's a new norm. It, like, I mean, everybody's beginning to understand that it's a very important thing to do. People are beginning to understand the linkages. With the COVID-19 pandemic has made people to understand those very linkages even much more clearly. We don't know where the virus came from, but previous viruses have come from the wild, from animals, and a lot of them from the wildlife, and jumped into people, either through an intermediate host or directly. They've come into people, and these same diseases, some of them have also been found to jump back from people to the wildlife. You know, and we've already seen that with COVID where, you know, you've seen people giving COVID to captive gorillas in zoos, captive lions, tigers, um, mink that are farmed in Netherlands and Denmark. So you can see that disease can cross in both directions. And so when you're able to improve people's livelihoods, um, make sure that they're healthy, their livestock are healthy, then you reduce the tension between the people and the protected area management and the people looking after the wildlife, the government. So One Health approach is a very good way to reduce human-wildlife conflict. And through our work, we've been able to influence the formation of the, the national population health environment networks in East Africa, East African community, where I helped to draft a strategy for the East African community for the countries, which include Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, Burundi. Um, these are other countries within the East African community. And then at the same time in Uganda, we now have National One Health Platform. All the countries in Africa have National One Health Platforms, which are all led by the government and we're advisors to it. But being seeing how successful, you know, case studies they're seeing that are initiated by NGOs like ours, convince the government that this is a good approach to follow. So that's one area that we really influence. And in the COVID-19 pandemic, we've influenced more responsible tourism to the great apes, where before the COVID-19 pandemic, when you visit the great apes, you don't have to wear a mask. People are getting too close to the gorillas um, and the chimpanzees, and we're worried about diseases that they could be picking up, you know, respiratory diseases especially. Because someone can travel on a flight, you know, you pick up something on the flight, you come, with the flu, and then you can give it to these precious endangered species. But during the pandemic, we advocated to the governments, and now we were successful together with other NGOs. And now everyone has to wear a mask, a protective mask, when you visit the gorillas and the chimpanzees, and even Southeast Asia. Everyone has to maintain a distance of 
10 meters, it increased from 7 to 10 meters. You have to be hygienic, wash your hands, you have to be healthy, extra healthy. Whereas before it was like, if someone looks sick, they don't allow you to check. But now they take your temperature to make sure that you really don't have a temperature. So we've helped to influence it. And although it's mainly been heavily piloted in Uganda and Rwanda, where tourism has even come back during the pandemic, other countries that want to follow us or don't have as much tourism, we've advocated to them through a policy brief that we've developed as part of the Africa CSO Biodiversity Alliance, where we are trying to advocate for all the countries in Africa that have great aid tourism. There's many as 13 that have it at 33 sites. We're advocating for all of them to be able to adopt these regulations so that even as tourists come and support the local economy and enable people, reduce the need for people to poach, which has happened in Uganda and Rwanda, at the same time, they're not going to be the very groups of people who are going to wipe out these and cause these animals to become extinct. Okay. No, I think I think that's very uh, good and that's very comprehensive. And it, I mean, I've had the privilege of traveling, uh, uh, you know, immediately after they lifted uh, the lockdown. And I realized that uh, one of the silver linings of this pandemic is to see a lot of uh, uh, you know, sanitary protocols put in place. And so you go to places and, you know, uh, it, 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 you're still sticking to wearing a mask, you know, washing of the hands, sanitizing, you know, et cetera. So I think it's one thing that we all be proud of. But uh, again, on the point of poaching, which I'm going to link this question to is, you know, with tourism almost shut for 20 months and some places still struggling, how did, you know, the wildlife community cope because if you look at the numbers, a uh, large chunk of 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 their revenue or budget comes from tourism activities. Now, how did that? How did they manage uh, the process? And with your NGO, uh, did you guys uh, look at alternative means of you know keeping these uh, wildlife institutions? running or there was a plan in place that we could probably uh, look at it and begin to build uh, resilience in, in you know in future yes um, i mean the pandemic showed us that we can't just rely on tourism to sustain conservation um because once the tourism disappeared overnight people could not survive a lot of them had completely given up farming the things they used to do before tourism began you know, traditional things we've been doing in Africa for decades and centuries. They gave that up because it was much easier to carry somebody's luggage to the gorillas. The money you get in one day, you come in is what you'd have earned in one month, just digging in the garden all day long and trying to sell some, some products. So we realized that people need to go back to what they used to do traditionally, um, but do it in a sustainable way. So we started to provide fast growing seedlings to over 1,500 homes around the park, vulnerable households, including the home of someone, the, the wife of a poacher who killed a gorilla and was put in jail for 11 years for doing that during the pandemic, a hungry Bushman poacher. And the whole point was that they'll have some food to eat. And when tourism comes back, instead of you know using the money to buy food, they can use the money for other things. So generally, food security became a very big issue. We realized that tourism was actually contributing to food security. And now we need, we, they needed to be able to continue to eat even when there's no tourism. Um, otherwise, they'll only turn back to the forest to poach. And you'll find that somebody who's a porter, his dad is 
you know, his parents are probably, his father's probably a former poacher or reformed poacher, someone who used to go into the park to poach and was no longer poaching because his son is bringing money home as a porter. And when his son is no longer bringing money home, he can only go back to the only way he knows how to survive. So we found that it's it's very important to find non-tourism dependent ways of surviving. And Gorilla Conservation Coffee, which is a social enterprise we had started before the pandemic, is a very good way of doing this because Gorilla Conservation Coffee is, um, we, before our main customers were tourists who, who used to come and buy the coffee and they'll be very happy to buy coffee because it's coming from communities. They're very happy to buy coffee because it's coming from the communities who they meet when they're something. Um, but now with the, those people also disappeared. So what we ended up doing, we, we ended up like looking for a market outside Uganda because ポーチンアゲンワトゥネダブダトウィンゴットエッユエインロブソクトエママーケットインナービガマーケットインユエスエイジーシーコフユエスエイドットコムマーケットインニュージーランドダットマーケットワスリヴァイブドインケニャ
and all those kind of people who are there supporting the communities, making them understand that gorillas are important. It's better that they are safe and healthy. The populations are growing. It's really important that the tourists also support that side of conservation. That's but, very, uh, very you important. Know, Dr. Gladys, you know, sorry to uh, cut you. I, I understand that the, you know they need to support that. In, you know, to be in order for us to have a very you know sustained and. Uh, keep the conservation fight. But again, uh, don't you think that it's part of the um, responsibilities of, say, a DMC or a tour operator for them to let them understand the value they're also getting uh, so that, you know, you have it on the balance of seeing that, of course, you're having more value for money, but also an uh, you know, appetite or something that you want to do to help the community as opposed to being it, uh, you have to support the community. What do you think if they can drive home that idea to, to travelers or to tourists? That that they should that that they should be more they should be willing to support communities because it protects the local economy. No, that. Uh, no. Hello, Dr. Gladys. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. No, my point was that yeah, I understand what you're saying, which is very good. But um, uh, I was suggesting that don't you think that is I mean the DMCs or destination marketing companies you know, can do well by also, uh, you know, educating the travelers about and also giving them a reason for them to support uh, the community as opposed to like, you know, the classical ways of saying that, okay, we want to give something to the community. But if you have some things that you just mentioned that, of course, you're coming for a trip, but you can also have the opportunity to go on, uh, you know, a coffee safari, something that is more uh, enticing at the same time, you know, balancing how people want to go out of their way to support uh, the community yes when they're marketing it they you know when the tour operators are talking booking the safaris for their tourists they should book an extra day to do community activities and to learn about the conservation work in the area that's very 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 important and actually the number of the tourists want that now they they, the the number of conscious travelers um, are growing in this world people don't want to just go to a place and just consume, you know, what they can. They want, they to, want immerse to give themselves. back as well. Mm. Exactly. They want to immerse themselves in the culture. They want to immerse themselves, you know, they want to get up behind the scenes and understand better how these animals are being looked after and how they can better contribute. And a lot of them, even when they've left, they continue to donate towards those projects that they met because they want to feel that they're giving back and they want to kind of extend yes. their tourism experience. No, that's, that's, that's good. Now, uh, you know, before we go, one other area that I, I you know, wanted to seek your, uh, your opinion on is that as someone, you know, who have dealt with uh, a lot of the stakeholders, uh, do you think that, uh, you know, the, the you know, participatory governance structures that we have in place allows for communities to also benefit in you know, respect to, uh, you know, tourism and, 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 and the whole ecosystem? Yes, they do. In Uganda, for example, um, it's an act of parliament that 20% of the park entry fee has to go to the local communities around the park. You know, from the money that's raised from tourism entry, when tourists enter the park, it has to go to the local communities. It's an act of parliament. And then also in Buindi National Park, because you can only have eight people visiting per gorilla group per day, because you don't want to disturb the behavior of the gorillas and you don't want to have too many people who are more likely to create to give them diseases um it's better that you have you have to limit the number of people visiting so they also don't get stressed and they're less likely to 
pick up diseases from people. So realizing the government, Uganda Wildlife Authority, realizing that you can only have eight people per gorilla group per day, um, it limits the number of people who can visit. What they've done is that they've, it's now $10 from every gorilla permit also goes to the local community. And that really makes a very big difference. Um, other, other structures that have been created, there's groups like Uganda Community Tourism Association, and Uganda Tourism Board tries to make sure that community tourism is promoted as much as nature tourism is promoted and all kinds of you know groups are coming up to make sure that the communities when you visit countries you're not only visiting the wildlife but you're also supporting the communities okay uh that's and a lot of victims also um you know like most of the people who are hired by the uganda wildlife authority are from the local community the lodges hire these people the ngos hire these people that makes a very big difference and community-based organizations are really we try our best to support them. Um, with that park entry fee that goes to the community, they write a proposal and the best proposals get funded. And normally they're proposals that are supporting a project which is benefiting more than one family. And so in that way, everybody benefits. Well, as they try and spread the benefits from tourism as much as possible. Okay, good. Now, uh, you, you joined forces with um, other partners when you guys launched my gorilla you know family initiative and uh some of the things that you know you had proposed or you know as part of the concept was to help people still uh you know contribute to to i mean to the gorilla family and all of that how is it going to affect or impact the destination with this project my gorilla family initiative it's really going to impact the destination because it's going to raise awareness about the destination number one so you more people will be interested in visiting because people only visit places that they've heard about so that's one good thing that's going to come out of the my gorilla family but also at the same time people realize that they can still support the gorillas by you know paying to watch videos of the gorillas even if they're not able to visit at that point in time. So that would be fantastic. And then for those people who have actually visited, they'll also be able to see that um, they can extend their visit after they visited, which is also very important. It isn't just a matter of going to Uganda, hanging up your certificate at home and encouraging others to come, which is great, but at least they know that when they download the app and they regularly pay for the content, they'll get updates of the groups that they tracked and they can continue that visit. And when they get updates on the groups that they tracked, they'll continue to protect those gorillas. Okay. Now, as we wrap up our, 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 our conversation again, uh, my last two questions, uh, you know, it, it will be about uh, wildlife uh, resilience and post-COVID or if you like transition uh, COVID. What should the industry do Basically, with you know, with uh, regards to tourism, and what we can ensure that at least for even for Africa, that if the world is shut again, or you know, in, if we have any force majeure or something, we are able to at least uh, you know survive or keep those industries uh, running. From what you see now, I think what the world now needs to do is we have to move away from only depending on tourism to sustain the wildlife and to sustain conservation efforts on the ground. And it's, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a huge wake-up call for that. 
um, in the past, we've ever had like maybe Ebola outbreak in DRC and then some tourists cancel their permits. You know, like when there's civil war, like in DRC, tourists can cancel their permits. You know, just a few things like that can happen. You know, when you have Ebola outbreaks, conflict, civil war, but not, not tourism to shut down completely. So when tourism shut down completely for six months in Uganda during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was a huge wake-up call. And it's been a wake-up call in so many other countries as well that have been dependent so much on tourism. Um, they, realized, they didn't realize actually how much tourists are supporting communities until tourism disappeared overnight and poaching escalated and in all countries in Africa and many other countries around the world. So I think going forward, we need to find other ways to sustain this. Some of virtual tourism is a very nice way where people still remain in contact with the wildlife, still remain in contact with the gorillas and other wildlife. Um, but, you know, even if, you know, no countries can no longer have people visiting, at least people can still continue to pay for those experiences because the rangers still have to go out and protect the wildlife, whether or not they're tourists. They still have to check on the animals. And especially when there's no tourists, because poaching inevitably goes up. Um, and as they're doing it, they're collecting information, which they're sharing with the rest of the world. And this is helping to maintain and protect these precious endangered species. Um, so I think going forward, that's one way that's very good. But even supporting those other communities who are not necessarily, you know, the park rangers, but providing markets for their products, you know, eco-friendly products like Gorilla Conservation Coffee, could be honey, you know, or any of those products is really good. Because when you find external international market for those products, you're not dependent just on the domestic market. And as long as you're generating a revenue and these people know it's because they're protecting the wildlife, they're getting this revenue for their agricultural products, you know, taking into account zero deforestation and all those kind of things. Um, and as they're being encouraged to plant shade trees and all of that, it's all good for the environment and it's good for the wildlife. And so we just have to find innovative ways like this to continue to protect the wildlife even when there's no tourism. Okay. And when there is tourism, make sure that the tourists give even more back to the communities. Dr. Gladys Kalimazikusoka, thank you so much for your time. But uh, just finally, again, uh, as an industry leader and uh, someone who, who, who has dedicated uh, her life into, you know, into conservation and uh, you know, into, into public health, what would be your advice to young people, those who look up to you as making uh, conservation an everyday thing? <laughs> um, I'll say that my advice to young people, um, um, women and different people around the world is it's very important to, you know, when you have your dream, follow your dream and the rest will follow, but also it's if you want to get engaged in conservation, I know that within our society, it's not common for women to work in the conservation sector because it requires traveling to remote locations with limited amenities. And it's people feel that it's not a place for a woman. But if you feel strongly that that's what you want to do, definitely go for it. It's very worthwhile. There are now many more women in these areas than it used to be when I first started out 20 years ago, actually 25 years ago. Um, and so it's, you know, it's really, really worthwhile. And if we don't protect the, the wildlife now, 
it will not remain for the future generations. And if you don't protect the wildlife now, we're going to have more and more problems and more and more issues. Seeing how the fact that deforestation is bringing us closer and closer to wildlife that can make us sick, um, clearing, you know, reclaiming of swamps is leading to increasing diseases, you know, more mosquitoes and all of that. So the more, and as you cut down trees, you're also reducing water, you're affecting the climate, you're contributing to climate change. All these things in the end of the day are affecting us. When the wildlife is not there, you can't visit it, you can't contribute from it from tourism, and people are just, you know, the poverty cycle cannot be broken. And so as long as you don't protect the wildlife, we're not be, we are making life worse for ourselves. We need to protect the wildlife so that it can protect us and we can have a planet in balance. So it's definitely a very worthwhile career for people to get engaged in. It's very fulfilling knowing that every day you're making a difference and it's definitely worth following up on it. And, you know, being determined and not getting discouraged because at the end of the day, you'll be very happy and you feel a great sense of achievement. Nothing like a fulfilled life. And uh, like you said, feeling determined and, you know, go for it. Thank you so much. And it's been insightful speaking to you uh, on the Via Tourism podcast and I hope to have you back again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm writing a book about my, a memoir path charter about my conservation experience, which talks about some of the things we've talked about in this podcast. And I'm very happy to, to for people to read it when it comes out. And I'll let you know when that happens. And for more, it's we hopefully it's going to be published this year. And for more information, please visit our website, www.ctph.org. And to order Gorilla Conservation Coffee, visit www.gccoffee.org. And I encourage you to download the app for My Gorilla Family and, you know, learn more about the gorillas through all these these initiatives. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been very insightful and have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful day too. Thank you. (laughs) 